Hello, and welcome to A Simple Prayer Podcast. This is Steve, and today we'll be talking about the question raised in the last episode that was about Charles Darwin. And the question is this, exactly how long is a day as used in the book of Genesis in the Bible? As we discussed last time, Charles Darwin lived in the 19th century at a time when modern science was making discoveries that appeared to some to be inconsistent with God's word in the Bible. For many years before Darwin's birth, people had been theorizing that animals change over long periods of time. They had observed fossils in the fossil record. They had observed animal breeding. Charles Darwin himself observed pigeon breeding and talked to the pigeon breeding people. In fact, Darwin's grandfather had written a book many years before Darwin was born in which he stated that animals appeared to evolve over time and may have evolved from a single source that may have lived many millions of years ago. However, these theories were opposed by the church in England. Many Christians felt that the book of Genesis states that God created the entire universe and everything in it, including animals, plants, people, in the span of six days, and that God formed man out of the dust of the earth within the span of a single day. So Charles Darwin ignited a firestorm of controversy when he published his book, and he had been thinking about his book called On the Origin of Species from the time he visited the Galapagos Islands as a young gentleman naturalist on Her Majesty's ship Beagle, which went on a five-year voyage of discovery around the world in the 1830s, including uh, stops at the various islands in the Galapagos Islands archipelago over a span of only five weeks. Now, the Galapagos Archipelago is a relatively very young chain of islands, dating back just a few million years at most, and the youngest island, the westernmost, being 500,000 years old. And having had very recent lava eruptions, which Charles Darwin actually witnessed, uh, volcanic eruptions on that island with lava flowing down to the sea, and when you go there today, you can actually walk on fresh lava flowing out. So it's very obvious that this is a young and new island. And when you go to the other islands in the chain and move progressively eastward, you can just see for yourself that they get younger and younger. And you can see for yourself that the animals on the islands are different. And to Charles Darwin's trained eye, he was uh, trained as a naturalist. He had uh, passed up on medical school. He had passed up on clerical school. Those were not for him. But he hit a home run as a naturalist because he could see the differences. And he, he mulled this over for many years after his voyage until uh, under pressure from competing people who were about to publish. Uh, he published his book on the origin of species in 1859. And that's when the controversy really hit the fan. And the controversy continues even until today. There are many examples in the history of science over the organized church opposing the results of scientific inquiries. Charles Darwin's case is one of the most famous, but probably the most famous is the case of Galilei Galileo. 
Galileo was born in Pisa, the part of the Duchy of Florence, which is now in Italy, on February 15, 1564, at a time when the Catholic Church considered the earth to be the center of the universe and held that the sun, the moon, the stars all revolved around the earth. Galileo was a mathematician and an astronomer who made major contributions to both of those theories. His formulation of the law of falling bodies and parabolic trajectories that are used today by satellites in orbit, and also uh, those laws are obeyed by planets and everything that orbits something else. Uh, That was a game changer in the history of science. Since he lived in Pisa, Italy, the Leaning Tower of Pisa was very convenient for Galileo to do scientific experiments. So he took weights of different different sizes and uh, weights, and he took them to the top of the Leaning Tower and dropped them off. And he proved that the speed of their fall was always the same, regardless of the weight. It was not proportional to its weight, as Aristotle in ancient Greece had believed. Well, unfortunately for Galileo, Aristotle in the universities of the day, the University of Pisa, was considered the last word on anything scientific and an attack on Aristotle was considered an attack on science. So Galileo suffered financially and had trouble getting a a chair at the university, although uh, his supporters did eventually get him a chair at the university in mathematics. But Galileo was viewed as a troublemaker for attacking established beliefs. Well, it was one thing to take on Aristotle in the University of Pisa, but it was a whole other thing to take on the Pope and the Catholic Church. In 1609, Galileo made his own telescope himself, and he began making major astronomical discoveries. He discovered that the surface of the moon is not smooth, but it has mountains and craters. He discovered the four visible moons that orbit around Jupiter, and he began asserting his long-held belief that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but to the contrary, the earth orbits around the sun. The Catholic Church censored all scientific publications. Uh, Galileo had to get permission. He actually got permission from the Pope to publish certain things, but he was specifically warned by the Pope to stay away from the Copernican theory that the earth was not the center of the universe. But Galileo was not one to be easily deterred. He went ahead and wrote a book, which he uh, wrote it as if it were a hypothetical situation he was proposing and had it sort of like a comedy where two people were discussing it. But he may have gone a little bit too far when he put the words of a character named Simplicio, the basically the dunderhead in the story, uh, Uh, Simplicio was using the Pope's favorite argument. So that was it as far as the Pope was concerned. Galileo was called to face the Roman Inquisition in 1633. So he was really in a bad spot. This easily could have led to torture and execution. 
Galileo was very fortunate in having some powerful friends. He was never put in a dungeon or tortured, but he was uh, forced to very wisely make a plea bargain. He was also forced to publicly renounce the theory that the Earth is not the center of the universe. And it's rumored that when he did, he whispered under his breath in Latin, uh, epur si muove, which would mean, and yet it moves. And of course, it does move. The earth does move and revolve around the sun, and everybody, almost just about almost everybody, knows that today. Galileo spent the rest of his life under house arrest. He suffered much more than Charles Darwin ever did for standing up for his scientific observations. But he was a hero in the search for truth, and history reflects poorly on the Catholic Church in that particular instance. Well, about 300 years went by, things changed, the spirit of scientific inquiry was strengthened, the power of the church was weakened, Charles Darwin comes along, comes up with his theory of evolution, but we still have this controversy between uh, religion and science. So can the two camps be reconciled? Is there ground for agreement between the two? Well, I think we're moving in that direction. And certainly to me, Charles Darwin was also a hero as a truth seeker. And he was conflicted about his religious faith because he was trying himself to reconcile his own scientific observations, his physical trained observations of God's mighty and majestic creation. And he was troubled by the fact that these appeared to contradict the Bible. And at times in his life, he called himself an agnostic. Yet to me, the bottom line is that Literally, the last word, the bottom line in Charles Darwin's famous book, editions the, from the second edition through the sixth and last edition, the last sentence in the book, Charles Darwin gives glory to the Creator, to God the Father. So we have to ask the question as Christians, are we reading the Bible correctly? Can we automatically assume that we fully understand the word of the Bible? And specifically in the case of Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution, exactly how long is a day in the book of Genesis? And of course, we know the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, six days for God to create the heavens and the earth and all life on it. Day one, God separated the light from the darkness. Day two, God created heaven. Day three, God created dry land, the seas, and vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees yielding fruit with seed in them after their kind. Day four, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, Day five, God created all birds and all sea creatures. Day six, God created all land animals plus Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. 
Now, you might like to pull out your Bible at this point and follow along with me, because I'll be talking about some specific Bible phrases here. And please note, as I just read, that in Genesis chapter 1, the plants, uh, day 3, uh, the plants, day 3, vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees yielding fruit with seed in them after their kind. And please note that that comes before day six, when Adam and Eve were created. Okay, so that's the creation story in Genesis chapter one. But the Bible contains many references to creation. And today I'll be focusing on the three main ones, Genesis chapter 1, which we just discussed, but also Genesis chapter 2, and then also Genesis chapter 3. And we have to compare these because these are all the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. Okay, now we'll do the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, and please follow along with me. We're looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, which reads, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist arose from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So this is... This is what I've called the Genesis chapter 2 creation story. Please please do note, however, that chapter 2 verse 1 starts with the seventh day of God's creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 itself contains days 1 through 6. And chapter 1 ends with these words, So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then chapter 2 starts with the seventh day of creation and says, On the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested. He rested on the seventh day. And then we commence with the words that I read you earlier from chapter 2, beginning, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So in chapter 2, we have at the start the end of the story of the seven days, the six days of creation and then the day of rest. And then we have the start of what really reads like a whole new creation story. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that story, it would appear from one point of view, is completely inconsistent with Genesis chapter 1. Why do I say that? 
Well, number one, the use of the word day is totally inconsistent between chapter one and chapter two, because chapter one goes through the six days of creation, as we discussed earlier. But in chapter two, it says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth. Well, that just doesn't match with Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God created heaven and the earth on different days. But in Genesis 2, it says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what exactly is a day? Well, to all of us who live on the planet earth, our Earth revolves in approximately 24 hours. Uh, it turns on its axis. The sun comes into view as the Earth turns, and that's the daytime. And then the Earth turns, and we face the other way, away from the sun, and that's the nighttime. That's 24 hours. But before the Earth came into being, there was no 24-hour Earth day because there was no earth. In fact, scientists tell us that the length of the earth day itself has changed since the earth was created because the earth is sort of like a spinning top that a little child starts a spinning top with a string. At least we used to do that when I was a kid. I don't know if kids do that much anymore, but the top would spin so rapidly as fast as you could yank the string and then it would gradually wind down and eventually topple over. Well, that's Sort of like the Earth, the gradually the rotation has slowed down over, over millions of years. And the moon, as a consequence, has gone farther and farther away. It used to be a lot closer to the Earth. So all of this is a very, very fluid and dynamic situation. It's not an exact situation about the length of the day. Our own solar system has... Well, they keep changing the definition of a planet. Pluto used to be a planet, but now it's not. But there are at least nine, ten other heavenly bodies orbiting the Earth, and they all rotate, and they all have night and day on them, and all those nights and days are of different lengths. And scientists tell us there are many, many, many millions, billions of other stars and solar systems out there in the universe, and they all rotate and have their lengths of days, and God created all of them too. So in a nutshell here, we have the word day in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 cannot be describing the same length of time because Genesis 2 says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and that was on separate days in Genesis 1. So, so those two uses of the word day simply cannot refer to the exact same length of time. And now let's turn to Genesis 3, which also uses the word day in yet another different context and different meaning. Genesis 3, of course, is the story of the fall, the apple, the serpent. The stage is set, of course, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day 
that you eat from it, you will surely die. And then chapter 2 ends with uh, the creation of woman out of the rib of Adam. By the way, uh, another translation of the Hebrew for, that is uh, translated in most Bibles as rib would be a side, side of Adam. A lot bigger than a rib of Adam. It would be half of Adam. Uh, but I digressed there. Uh, Chapter 2 ends with, uh, Therefore a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Not ashamed. Then we start with Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes on the stage. He tempts the woman to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The woman says, No, God told us we will die. The serpent says, you surely will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, of course, Satan always knows how to tell a partial truth, doesn't he? Because these words that Satan uses are, in fact, true. Why do I say that? Well, they did not die. They now knew the difference between good and evil. They now knew that they were naked and they became ashamed. And verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And God himself says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22, which reads, The Lord God said, The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So the serpent actually was telling the truth when he tempted Eve and Adam. He was telling the truth, but it tempted them to want to become like God, because that's what Satan wants. He wants to be God. He wants to be God. He wants us to worship him. And he tempted Adam and Eve with that most basic satanic instinct to want to be like God. So when Adam and Eve succumbed to that temptation, that created a whole new day, a whole new day. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. They did not physically die. They did not physically die. They spiritually died. They were expelled from oneness and communion and daily just being and hearing the word of God every day. Now they were spiritually dead. And so many people still are, and, and we know that it's only through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, that we can find our way back to God, that we can find our way back to the garden from which we were expelled when we tried to be like God. So that's the day we're in. That is the day we were in, as used in Genesis 3. 
The day that we ate of the fruit is the day we will die, and we are still living in that day. That day occupies all the time ever since. So in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, we have day, 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 day. All those uses of the word day in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, they're not talking about 24-hour earth days. They're talking about ages, the age of the death of man, the age of the creation of the heavens, the age of the creation of the stars, the age of the creation of the animals, and so forth. It's an age, an eon, an era, long periods of time. And these eras can overlap with each other, and some eras can be going on at the same time as other eras, or at different times. The example of the vegetation that we use, the difference between Genesis chapter 1, day 3, and Genesis chapter 2, where the trees, the shrubs and the trees had not yet even sprouted. Uh, on the day that man was created, that the day that uh, life was breathed into man. You know, we have dictionaries readily available on the Internet. I checked uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary for the definition of day. And the first uh, definition is the time of light between one night and the next, uh, as in the shortest day of the year. Well, that's the 24-hour uh, definition uh, Two is daylight. Definition three is the uh, mean solar day of 24 hours. Uh, Definition four is a specified day or date. Definition number five is a specified time or period, an age. You know, we Christians cannot arrogantly assume that we know how to read and understand the word of the Bible. We must always humbly and prayerfully ask the guidance of the Holy Spirit when reading the Bible. The example of the Pope and the Roman Inquisition of the great scientist Galileo are still fresh in memory. God himself cautioned us, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 55, verses 8 through 13, one of my favorite passages in the Bible which reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bud and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, My word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper where I send it. And God in his holy word has told us about time, about its changeability, about its fluidity, about its mutability. Psalm 90, verse 4, For in your sight... A thousand years are but a day that passes, or a watch of the night. In the story of Jacob, Genesis chapter 29, verse 20, 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. The book of Joshua, chapter 10, verses 13, at the battle of Jericho. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance upon its enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. The movement of the heavenly bodies themselves obey the Lord. Our God in the book of Matthew, the Christmas story. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. The three wise men went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. That's the manger with the baby Jesus. So God himself has told us in the Bible that time is not fixed, time is not exact, time is fluid. There's a famous novel by Thomas Mann that captures this concept just beautifully. It's called The Magic Mountain. It just captures the subjective changeability of time. And I won't spoil the story for you, but at the climactic moment in the book, where the most important event in the character's life occurs, and at this crucial moment, my copy of the novel, which was written in English, switches to French. So you have to take more time to read that few paragraphs uh, in the book. It takes more time, and it, it, to me, that really uh, drove it home. It made me understand how those, a very short conversation, a few moments, meant everything to this main character in the book. And, and that time was like the sun at the Battle of Jericho. Time just stopped for him at that time. So what, what does it mean? Can the word day is used in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, can that accommodate millions of years of evolution, changeability of plants and animals? If you go to Chicago, you might want to check out the Field Museum of Natural History and its wonderful exhibit on evolution, where they lay out literally in front of your eyes actual fossils of the entire history of life on Earth. It's a very persuasive experience to walk through that exhibit and look at the actual fossils, which tells the story, really. One just needs to see it in person. Christian creationists, uh, those who assert that the, the universe was created in literally six earth days, respond to that by saying that, well, God created the earth and everything in it with the evidence of a long creation, but that's the way he made it in a very short period of time with fossils and all the other evidence of, of a long, gradual process built into it already. Well, I can see how that could be true from God's point of view, because to him, a thousand years is but a day, and he sees from alpha to omega, the beginning to the end. But not to we regular people. To us, God needs to speak to us in a way that we can understand. And when God inspired Genesis, he was speaking to Moses. 
And people in Moses' time did not know the scientific things we know today. Humanity, including Moses, had no concept of immense periods of time. They were pastoral people, they were often at war, they were rudimentary farmers. They lived from day to day. The number billion had not been conceived of at that time. And according to my Bible, Genesis was written about 4,200 something approximately years ago. It was the ancient Greeks who first conceived of the possibility of such a huge number back around 400 BC. But necessary to higher mathematics are the number zero and the decimal point. And it wasn't until about in the 1600s AD that the number billion was, uh, the, the word for the number billion was invented. So back when God inspired the book of Genesis, he had no way to convey to humanity, to Moses, the awesome expanse of time involved in the creation. He just couldn't do it. But what he could do was use the word day. And again, in Isaiah, my words are not your words. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And God so often speaks to us in parables. It's said of Jesus that at one point in time, uh, he said nothing that was not a parable. God loves to speak to us in parables. Parables, no, nobody can believe that parables are to be taken literally. They don't really have a literal meaning. It's obvious that they have a spiritual meaning, a spiritual message is intended. God's trying to stretch our minds, to, to stretch our spiritual eyesight by speaking in parables. Very early on, God was speaking in parables to the people. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, God told Moses, You have seen for yourselves what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He was talking about the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. But did God literally carry the Israelites on eagles' wings out of Egypt and bring them to himself? No, it's clearly a parable. So likewise, God simply could not have explained the entire 13.8 billion year history of the universe to Moses. He would have lost his audience after the first couple of sentences. What God did do was perfect, majestic, awesome. The entire story of the universe that still stands up today to scientific scrutiny, if it's approached with the eye of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. We have to come to understand more deeply, ever and ever more deeply, that God is stretching us. He's making us grow, especially spiritually, grow towards eternal life, grow towards his holy family, but also intellectually and socially in every other way. He wants us to grow and stretch and expand our understanding of his amazing universe. Let me give you the timeline that I came up through my research on the internet of the history of the universe and all the events up until the present time. 
Now, many of these numbers are in the billions, and to just give you an idea of the scale, a billion is one followed by nine zeros. And if we take one billion inches, that is more than halfway around the world. So let's say roughly uh, two billion inches uh, goes all, more than all the way around the world at the equator. So if there were a sidewalk on the earth all the way around the equator and you could just walk and walk and walk around and around the earth, it would take you approximately seven trips around the earth to reach 14 billion inches, and that's the approximate age of the universe, a little bit older. The universe, according to scientific measurements of the redshift of light from the faraway galaxies, indicates uh, 13.8 billion years ago. Billion years ago, the universe came into being. The light became transparent. The light entered the universe. Now, I'll be doing an episode on Albert Einstein and discuss all of this in more detail. But right now, I'm doing the timeline of the creation of the universe. So we started 13.8 billion years ago. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, 13.6 billion years ago. The sun, 4.6 billion years ago. The earth, 4.5 billion years ago. The oceans, 4.5, same time as the Earth. Cellular life on the Earth took over a billion years to come into being out of the dust of the Earth, 3.46 billion years ago. The first green plant, which was one cell, unicellular green plant life with photosynthesis, 1.2 billion years ago and that was in the sea. The first fish, 500 million years ago. The first land plant, remember the vegetation had not yet sprouted on the earth, remember that? The first plant on the land, 470 million years ago. 30 million years after the first fish. Scientists say we are descended from the first fish who ever walked on land 375 million years ago. And from there, according to the scientists and the fossil record, animals evolved and spread across the face of the earth and people evolved from those animals and spread across the face of the earth. But humans did not reach modern anatomy, their current image in the, in the image of God until about 315 million years ago. Human clothing, not invented until 170,000 years ago. Figurative art of paintings in caves, not until 40,000 years ago. The domestication of cattle, only 10,500 years ago, and writing only 4,600 years ago, maybe only 400 years before the book of Genesis was written. To me, to consider this vast expanse of time and the amazing divine creativity that went into creating this beautiful earth and everything on it and the human beings and all of the animal life that I was so 
privilege to have seen on the Galapagos Islands when I walked in the footsteps of Charles Darwin and to see the life in the eyes of those animals and to interact with them in an amazing way to actually be in a bait ball of fish underneath the surface of the ocean and to have a diving blue-footed booby cause those fish to instantly drop to the bottom of the ocean faster than I could even see. And I turned as quickly as I could, but all I could see was a bubble trail from the surface of the sea down towards the bottom, and it had been left by a diving blue-footed booby that I then got out of the water. I climbed up to the top of a nearby volcano, and I could look down, and I could watch the several blue-footed boobies hunting for fish. And from the top of this volcano, I gazed down over God's magnificent creation, the beautiful islands sparkling out of the gorgeous sea, the sunlight dazzling on the water, and these blue-footed boobies far away. I could watch them soar and dive for fish into the very water where I had been just shortly before in the midst of a bait ball that was penetrated by a diving blue-footed booby. Just awesome, just amazing, just incredible. And with that, it's time to turn to the Lord for our simple prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our Creator. We know, dear Lord, that our words are not your words and our thoughts are not your thoughts and that the correct understanding of your holy word the bible may at times be beyond us and we struggle and we seek and we seek in your name in the name of jesus in the name of the holy spirit we seek to learn dear lord we read in the book of isaiah chapter 55 verse 11 where it reads my word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper where I send it. And then, dear Lord, you say, you will indeed go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will grow, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will spring up. They will make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign, never to be destroyed. And dear Lord, we understand from this holy word that you have a plan for creation and that your creation continues. Even today, you created the universe, the earth, the heavens, everything in it, human beings, you created all of that. You formed us each from the dust of the earth and you breathed into us all the breath of life. Dear Heavenly Father, we understand that your creation is not finished. We read in Romans chapter 8, Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time. Dear Lord, we understand that you have a plan, that your whole creation, including us, is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time, dear Lord. But yet that you have a future plan for all of your creation, including the beasts of the field. In Isaiah 43:20, we read, The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. And dear God, we understand that your creation, including humanity with your earth, with the birds and the animals, is not yet finished, because we read in Ezekiel 39, verse 17, And as for you, son of man, this is what the Lord God says, Call out to every kind of bird and every beast of the field. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great feast on the mountains of Israel. And dear Heavenly Father, we understand that there is a living stone. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Dear God, we ask your blessing on our understanding and our efforts as we seek to work with you to build this spiritual house. And to do so, dear Lord, we need a proper understanding of science, and we ask your blessing on all human science and your inspiration for all scientists, and may they all repent of their sins and turn to you, as indeed we ask all people be led to repent of their sins and turn only to you, and we ask that you find a way to infuse all human science with your divine mind and your divine blessing to lead us forward on paths that are acceptable to you towards this spiritual house that we are to help build. Dear Heavenly Father, through the history of science of Galileo Galilei and of Charles Darwin and of others, it appears that your physical reality is not always consistent with the interpretation of your holy word of many people. And we ask that all people be led towards a proper and clear and correct understanding of your holy word. And we ask that our increased knowledge always be used for purposes acceptable to you and that in doing so, we be granted credibility with other people based upon our firm attachment to your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word, so that they may be led to you. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on this beautiful planet, floating in the vastness of space, orbiting around the sun, home to everything that we love and hold dear on this earth, 
And to conclude this prayer, dear Lord, we offer to you a song, sung to the best of our very limited ability, but it's the beautiful following two stanzas of the divinely inspired hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. All thy works with joy surround the earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around the center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea. Singing bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. In Jesus' name, amen.